You're listening to the Toolstation Western League podcast with Ian Knockholds and Tom Hiscott. Welcome, listeners, to episode 34 of the Toolstation Western League podcast with me, Ian Knockholds, and I am delighted to be joined on the Skype by Tom Hiscott, the editor of the Western League Bulletin. Hello, Tom. How are you? Yeah, well, doing all right. Yeah, um, coping, I think, uh, still. Doesn't look like there's much uh, much sign of an end to this in the in the near distant future. So yeah, um, battling along yourself. Yes, I've got myself a new hobby. I've been um, following the uh, the debates that are raging on social media as to whether or not the football association were right to void the season. Mm. And um, I mean, it makes for quite an interesting read, to be honest with you, not least because, of course, as every day sort of ticks by, um, the debates raging at the top of the pyramid about whether the the Premier League are going to continue or the EFL are going to continue sort of put into context the decision um, that was taken to void um, steps three to uh, seven and of course the women's game mm-hmm. and it's sort of it's, the narrative appears to be well this this might well have been the right decision but it was made by completely the wrong people in completely the wrong way um oh, right. <laughs> and uh, and and there'd been various sort of solicitors letters flying between um leagues and the fa and various clubs and it, it does sort of it's fascinating to sort of get into the the nuts and bolts of it really because some of the arguments that come up can only really be described as quite spurious really when sort of we're all, you know, we're all living with the elephant that's in the room, which is coronavirus. And, um, you know, and, and as people do t- say from time to time, you know, there are bigger, um, they're bigger fish to fry at the moment. But anyway, that's um, that's keeping me mildly entertained, albeit that um, I sort of sit there endlessly reading this stuff when I should probably be looking after my children. But anyway, that's another, <laughs> that's another, that's another story. That's enough from me. Anyway, what we're going to do on this um, episode of the Toolstation Western League podcast, we've got two fantastic interviews um, to bring you. I'm, I'm really pleased with these interviews. And um, the first is with Ben Williamson. He's a referee and he's giving us the referee's perspective on not only the coronavirus lockdown, but also um, his own personal take on um, uh, what it's like to be a referee at the Western League level. He also referees higher than that, but it's quite a fascinating insight into the sort of psychology um, of, of our match officials. And that's very much um, in keeping with our love the whistle theme that, of course, we've um, been dipping in and out of over the course of recent podcast episodes. And we've also got an, an interview with John Cuthbertson. Now, John, um, it will be known to many of you, particularly through his work on Twitter and social media, um, as a photographer, a very good photographer. He's won the um, Western League um, Photographer uh, of the Season a couple of times. But it's his work in historical research, specifically the history of Corsham Town, um, that, um, that's that got me um, talking to, uh, to John. But, of course, we do touch upon photography as well. But we will kick off um, this week's episode, as we have been doing since the lockdown began, by finding out what Tom's been up to in self-isolation. So, Tom, it's over to you for your self-isolation nation self-isolation nation love it um yeah <laughs> similar kind of you know uh, routine trying to sort of get out early morning especially with the weather's been so nice and, and what have you so yeah it's quite nice um see, seeing what's going on out there but obviously not much not much activity but the yeah it's nice to get a stroll every morning try and get try and get a bit of energy and, and what have you a bit of, bit of activity in the legs <clears throat> but yeah um in terms of getting with the stuff uh, i've read eddie finished eddie jones's uh, autobiography and then my coach think i touched on it last week so yeah plenty of time sat in the garden reading that which is which has been pleasant uh and then yeah a couple of 
watched a couple of films. Uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, bit of a classic. Uh, I think that was on Saturday afternoon. And then there was a new, well, not new, but uh, on Sky Movies premiere, there was a Pikachu Pokemon film, which was interesting enough to, to pass an hour and a half, which obviously we need to try and do in these in these <laughs> trying times, find find a bit of uh, time to time to fill. So that was that was interesting. Uh, and then I watched Rain Man as well, which I hadn't watched in quite a long time. So that's a pretty decent film. So yeah, in terms of the the films I watched this week, those were the, probably the standouts. Uh, a little bit of telly on. It was. That uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire thing? I don't know if you read about that or saw any of that. Um, called Quiz, where they look back at the. It was like a. Uh, it's a bit of a scandal, wasn't it? Yeah, the the coughing scandal, which apparently they never actually showed the the full running of that because it happened uh, one day before 9 11 when they actually filmed it. So it never actually got out because um, I think it was going to be shown the next night or something. And obviously, certain things. Um, more important than that as we're finding out at the moment with with tv schedules and whatnot but yeah so that was um and michael sheen was in there and he was amazing as uh as uh, chris tarrant you almost forgot it was somebody acting to be honest um and you thought it was probably well it was yeah a very good um uh, reenactment of, of that and that was an interesting story which again i don't really know much about so so that was good that was i think it was on three nights on itv last week so that was that was decent and then uh, on Sunday afternoon, there was a another one of these um, Sky Sports reruns. They did a Miracle at Medina, which was, I think, was it 2012? Uh, Ryder Cup in America, which Europe should never have, or came back from came back from the dead to win, which was which was good. And they had a few of the uh, the main protagonists, like Ian Poulter and um, Luke Donald and people like that, um, who were like on a Skype or a Zoom or whatever with a couple of the Sky presenters and talk through some of the moments and actually, yeah, revealed a few stories that you probably wouldn't, yeah, I didn't know until now. So that was interesting. I think those sort of things are, are pretty cool in this, this day and age, uh, in this, uh, in this time, finding out and seeing what, seeing what, seeing what happened back in the day. And yeah, and then, well, for me, the most exciting thing, I don't know if this will be for everybody, but, uh, on Netflix, uh, there's a, a new Michael Jordan uh, documentary, which is uh, it's coming out two episodes every every uh, Monday morning for the next five weeks, uh, which looks back at the 1970, 1997, sorry, 98 uh, Chicago Bulls team, which is again, I'm only what 20, 25, so it's just before my time. Uh, well, not before my time, but I was pretty young when this was happening, so I don't know much about it. But well, he's probably one of the most significant sportsmen of the last sort of 20, 30 years. But he's quite guarded uh, in this day and age. Um, he retired quite a while ago, so not many people. He doesn't sort of do interviews every now and then. Doesn't work in the media or anything like that. So he's quite a guarded individual. But he is um, doing well. He's done. Uh, lots of lots of interviews for this pro, uh, TV program, and there's about a hundred others that have uh, chipped in as well. And it's uh, basically looking back at that team. I think they had access um, back then, so they've got sort of a, a documentary, and it's just yeah, amazing insight into yeah, one of the greatest sportsmen of all time. So it's a real real good eye opener. So that's uh, on Netflix for the next couple of weeks, and we're looking forward to seeing how that develops. So yeah, that's um, yeah, that's been main things I've been up to the last week, I'd say. That's been keeping you busy then? Uh, yeah, trying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so on, our, on to our first interview then. And um, as I said at the top of the podcast, of course, we've carried a number of interviews, um, most notably with Martin Cassidy from Ref Support, looking at um, the the role that match officials play in our game. So I thought it would be really interesting um, to actually speak to um, to a referee, uh, not just because uh, it's important to get their perspective on, on how they view the game, but also, of course, um, they're people just like us and they're suffering at the moment without any football and also living um, under lockdown. So I caught up with Ben Williamson, a level three match official based in, in Wiltshire. And um, I started off by asking Ben what got him into refereeing. I started refereeing, I think, when I was 12, 13 years of age. Um, I used to play football for Castle Coon Colts. Um, was never never uh, very good at football, which is probably the same for most match officials. Um, I got an uh, injury in my knee. Um, I tore a cruciate ligament, um, which put me on crutches for six months. Um, and I just, I was advised probably not to continue playing football because it weakened my knee. Um, had a love for, for, the, for the game, wanted to keep involved. Um, and Paul Knowles um, at the time, who was a, a member of the local refereeing community, um, got my details and, and asked me if I would be interested in refereeing. All those years ago, I thought, yeah, why not? It keeps me involved in, it keeps me involved in football. I did my training, passed my qualification at 14 years of age, and here I am at the, the young age of 28, still going. What's been your pathway then? Um, I don't because uh, where where do referees start? Uh, so you start off at kind of grassroots football, and it depends on your age really. Um, so if you're under the age of 16, I think it is, um, you can only referee up to and including your own age own age group. Um, so you're kind of doing kids football. Um, from the age of 16 over, you can then referee open age football. Um, so that can take you on to kind of Sunday league football. Um, and, and amateur football um, and then f- through a series of uh, assessments or observer reports as they're as they're referred to now um, there's like a, a marking criteria um, that goes into a merit table um, and if you hit the right criteria you can get promoted promoted up the ranks and am I right in thinking that you are a level three match official yeah so a level three referee um have been now for four years so that allows me to referee the western premier league southern premier league southern south and west or division one of the southern league um and it also allows you to be an assistant referee on either the conference north or south or the national league north and south um or if you progress further in the world of assistant refereeing you can be an assistant referee on the national the national league premier division um, which is fortunately where I find myself. So I, I, I referee all of that, as well as women's football. Um, yeah, it's quite quite a lot of quite a lot of opportunities to referee. And I mean, is there a geographical area that you that you service, or I mean, could le- refereeing, of course, at the national league level, does that mean that effectively you you might get sent anywhere in the country? In effect, yes. In reality, no, not really. Um, for the for being a referee on the national league, yes, they will send you throughout the country. Um, but being an assistant referee on the national league, um, they ge- there is ge- a general geographic area. Um, I think the furthest I've I've been, I've been down to Devon. Um, I've been across to Maidenhead. Um, I've not really been that far because quite fortunately there's quite a few um, opportunities to in the National League in this sort of area. Torquay, yeah. Maidenhead isn't too far away, uh, Yeovil's not too far. 
So that's generally, as an assistant referee, where they try to keep us. So obviously you've been doing this for a while now, which means um, that you haven't been put off um, by any of the uh, some of the circumstances that we see reported that match officials have to you know have to face. Which is one of the reasons, of course, we wanted to we wanted to speak to uh, to you today. And we well, we spoke to Martin Cassidy a few weeks ago from Rest Support yeah. to understand what referees go through. But rather than looking at the negative, let's focus on the positive. Um, what do you enjoy most about about being a match official? There's so many things. Um, I think for me at the moment, especially kind of the level I find myself at now, um, the ability to go to some of the most amazing grounds in the country um, to to deal with some really, really high respected managers and players, professional players, um, and coming into contact with them is obviously brilliant. The opportunity just to be involved in football um, it is great. And I guess that the, probably the, the little buzz for a referee, um, especially for me, is when, when you play an advantage and someone scores from it, there's probably no better feeling for a referee. The art of advantage is quite is quite difficult to master um, because obviously you're trying to appease a lot of people um, and the crowd and management and everybody else that's watching. Um, so so playing an advantage is and, and a goal being scored off the back of it. Hopefully for the team playing for the, the advantage four is one of, one of the best feelings as a, as a referee. And conversely, I mean, what is it that you you dislike most about about the role? Because the laws of the game are are really um, subjective. They can be uh, understood in so many different ways. There's no although they give you guys it's not clear cut where in other in other in other kind of sport it's probably a little bit clearer um i mean we talk about the offside rule all the time offside law and and what it could be changed to and how it's changed over the years um but i think the understand the understanding that people have um probably differs from kind of who you are within sport where match officials probably have a, a greater understanding of the laws of the game um, managers think they do, and players also think they know the laws of the game. So it's really hard when you've got um, passionate players, passionate managers, it, playing for the club and managing the club means so much to them. Um, and then you face the difficulties of trying to get them to understand the laws of the game, especially when there's so many changes that come out each year. Referees practice for that, we study it, we, we have exams on it. Um, and then we go to the first game of the season with these new laws that are introduced and, and no one's really got a clue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's probably really difficult to try and get that across whilst you're, you're there as a, uh, an official to, to referee the game. You also want to try and educate people. Sometimes they're not very open to being educated or it's not the right time to educate it during the game. It's probably not the right time to try and explain the, the change in the the, the offside law or the change recently that we've seen in sin bins because people didn't understand it. So that's that's normally quite difficult is managing those expectations. So it's it's quite difficult for a match official when there's been some controversy in the game or and unfortunately the job of the referee is to make unpopular decisions. Now we we derive from the word arbiter. The reason you'd have that is when two teams can't make a decision is why you'd have an arbiter. Normally, that then leads to somebody that's not happy with your decisions and then walking off at half-time or full-time and having players refusing to shake your hand because they're not happy with your decisions or spectators screaming, shouting and swearing at you um, when actually that, that, that's not right. Um, recently, I was uh, on the line down at Torquay um, and some of the obscenities that 
the, the fans behind me were shouting about my family, about my children, which don't exist because I don't have any, about my mum. Really personal comments because I gave him free, I, I signaled to the referee a free kick against Torquay. And and you just think, really, is, is that necessary? Yes, we all understand there's a bit of banter. We all understand when people get excited at football. But to have kind of personal direct comments made at you because you gave a throw in on the halfway line against the team that think it's theirs because you, you've seen a little touch that nobody else has or making an offside decision and someone threatening you it, it's not nice it's really not why we're there and what effect did that incident have on you because I assume it didn't happen at the end of the match so I mean when you are subject to that sort of abuse at a point in the match I mean does it persist or do you find that actually it sort of wanes depending on you know the way that play is going uh, it definitely, definitely depends on on the way players going. Because, I mean, that for me, unfortunately, that happened fairly early on into the game, first 15, 20 minutes. And then you think, in the back of your head, whilst you're trying to concentrate on what's going on in front of you and and supporting the referee and the rest of the team to make the right decisions, you have that in the background constantly, people behind you screaming and shouting at you. It's it it doesn't help with concentration. Um, but then. The sad thing is when you give a throw in what was perceived to be the correct way, you all get a cheer and, oh, we're all best friends again. Um, that particular game at Torquay, at the end of it, um, I, I, went into the, I went into our dressing room at the end of the game and I nearly, I nearly, I nearly burst into tears because I just felt that the pressure was so much um, of the concentration. Obviously, we, we always try and give 100% to the best of our ability, but to battling constant... Um, negative comments about about my mum and my sister and children that don't exist it, it's tough yeah but spectators just seem to think that's part of the game and I don't, I don't think that's okay I mean does it change at all the lower down you go um in in the game because of course I mean I suppose obviously at the, you know Western League level our clubs wouldn't gates that Torquay United would get um but equally it, d- does the nature of that relationship changed so that you're not so much necessarily having a hard time from the supporters but your relationship perhaps with the with the managers and their and their and their support staff or the players does does that does that change the dynamic but by the time you've got down to western league level I'm not sure it it really does. Don't get me wrong. You have have some absolutely fantastic managers in the Western League. um, And the vast majority of the time, everything goes fine. You can have a chat. And the best part being at the end of the game, you can have a beer in the bar and have a a chat with the managers. And you can talk through talk through decisions or oh ref why did you why did you come up with this decision and why did this happen and and that's fine um but it's i think it's also the understanding about how you approach those conversations um i don't think that there's a referee that i could name that doesn't doesn't like speaking to the manager or won't speak to the secretary at the end of the game um but it's about a timing thing um you'll you'll probably see quite a lot at western league football at half time one of the managers will come storming over towards the referee and the assistant referees to to share an opinion and and that's that's not the right time um visibly it doesn't look very good that the the manager's storming over to the referee whereas a little thing see if he just waited till no one was looking and went oh ref can i just ask you a question most referees will go yes yeah of course you can but just come into my dressing room we'll do it or we'll just do it out of out of view um, but there seems to be a perception that if i come storming onto the pitch and, and talk to the referee or share my disagreements with the referee. And then the referee then generally goes, look, I'm not going to speak to you here. We'll do it inside. And then it gets a little more heated because referees are generally known as arrogant when that happens because we don't want to speak to them. 
And it, it's not the fact we don't want to speak to them. More than happy to explain why it wasn't a red card, why it was a yellow card, whatever. But it, it, it's just about a timing piece of when that happens, because referees also have to manage the event and the expectations for everybody else. Um, and if you've got one West League team manager having a go at me at half time on the field of play, and then that other team are going to see that that manager is talking to me. And in the second half, I give a decision. And then the, the perception will be, well, you've only done that because that manager is speaking to you at halftime. Mm. But no one really understands that that, that we, we as match officials think about that and we're coached to, to deal with that. Um, and I just think if there, was, if there was just a bit more understanding of, of why referees do what they do, I, at whatever level, I don't think it really matters because the passion and... The, the focus for the managers are still there, whether it's you're an amateur Saturday league team or Sunday league team, or you're a Western Premier League team that have budgets and there's financial pressures and there's managers' livelihoods and stuff at stake. So I, I don't think it, it differs too much. As, as long as I think that we, we start changing the way and the relationships between match officials, like doing things like this, um, and managers and players, I think it's a really tough one to crack. I remember when I was refereeing youth football. Um, as soon as I could give up youth football at 16, I did um, because I, I really struggled with the parents, the players, the kids, 10, 12, 14, 16-year-olds were fine. It was the parents trying to relive their, their footballing careers through their children, which was really difficult. Um, and, and it's quite hard for 15, 16-year-old referees to, to manage the game as a new referee and then try and manage an irate manager who's screaming and shouting at a 14, 15-year-old referee. I, I found that really difficult. So, yeah, as soon as I could stop refereeing youth football, I did. Um, and I've, I've never really gone back to it. Because I wanted to ask you, if there was one thing about the game um, that you could change, what would it be? But, I mean, in the course of this conversation, there's been a number of things that, that sort of strike me that, um, that, that actually could make quite an important difference for people who want to get involved in match officiating. But, I mean, I'll ask the question anyway. If there was one thing you could change, what would it be? You'd like to say some greater clarity between, around the laws of the game so people know kind of the offside law. We've looked about VAR and all that sort of stuff. If there's clear daylight between the attacker and the defender, that would make it a lot easier for everybody and everyone would be able to accept that. But I I do think then the biggest change I'd like to see is some better working relationships between football clubs and match officials um, because I do think, hand on heart, that there's a generic feeling that referees turn up, um, in inverted commas, ruin the game and then go home. Mm. And, and that, that probably couldn't be further than the truth the passion that, that referees have for the game is astronomical. Um, the, fit, the levels of fitness training that the referees at this level go through, the, the training nights, the, the law examinations, the, the looking at kind of teams and the, the pressure of, oh, fine, I've got a top, a top of the league game or a, a bottom of the league game, where the, those games really matter to the clubs. Yet yeah, we'll turn up. We do our preparation for the game to keep club, the costs uh, a, a minimum to the clubs for arranging joint travel with other match officials where we can. Um, the lead up to the game, I, I just think then there needs to be some better understanding of, of what referees go through um, and, and how much we love the game. Um, and I, I think that would then help um, kind of bridge this massive, what to me appears to be a massive gap between uh, football clubs 
um, and and referees, and and that's what I'd like to see change. And part of, and and that's a lot of the work that that ref support are doing, which I think is brilliant. And that their manager forums and things like that, I think, are great ways to get into the minds of of, of managers, secretaries, players, to to see why why this kind of bridge exists in the first place, and to take down those barriers. Mm. That's probably what I'd like to see changed. Well, hopefully, interviews like this will help. Um, people understand how you see the game in your in your own words, which I think you make a very powerful case, Ben. Um, no conversation at the moment is complete without discussing coronavirus and the lockdown. So how are you coping at the moment? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, obviously, like I've kind of alluded to, the fitness levels that we have to go through, um, it's quite apparent we're ne- we would have been near the end of the season now. June is normally the time that our fitness tests um, for referees happen at this level. Um, so I'm doing plenty of kind of fitness work and just trying to get out where I can, where the COVID-19 regulations allow me to for my daily exercise, 5K challenges that friends are posting on Facebook and stuff. So so lots of fitness work, which is good. Um, but I've also kind of launched a, a new business for grassroots sports uh, referees and sports providers called YesRef. Um, and the lockdown has given me the time to work on the business with my business partner um, and, and plan to grow that as soon as lockdown has ended. Um, so fortunately, um, I do have enough to keep busy at the moment. Well, I, I can't let you introduce a little a little grenade like that without getting to tell us what that, that business is all about. What's YesRef all about? Uh, so YesRef is going to be a, a new online platform for sports providers um, to find referees for their fixtures. Um, so it differs th- all throughout the country um, of how leagues find referees or sports clubs find referees. Um, so we're introducing a, a digital approach to hopefully save county FAs and clubs a lot of time, effort and money in trying to source a referee for their game or their pre-season fixture or their tournament. Oh, excellent. Well, I, I hope that I hope that goes well for you. Um, bringing it back to um, the current um, sort of lockdown situation, how how did uh, how did you feel when you heard the news that the, uh, the this season was going to be voided? I was quite upset, really. Um, get we referees do it for the love of the game, the same as players want football to be on Saturday afternoon, three o'clock, or Saturday afternoon. 11 o'clock if you're a referee um is is game day you need to make your preparations you you just you get into the routine of doing it and it's really difficult right in your head you plan for fine end of april may season will be over and you kind of just plan your routine life i guess um and then to hear like to hear that they've just stopped it it was quite difficult with without any clarity of of what that means um, for, for refereeing point of view, what does that mean for our promotion? What does that mean for our demotion? What does that mean for all the marks that we've accumulated throughout the season so far? And then thinking of well, what, what does that mean for clubs? Um, I'm a Liverpool fan. Um, what, what's <laughs> happening to us? Um, I want to win the league for the first time. I want to do it properly. I don't want it just to be handed to us because we've stopped the stopped the season. Um, so it, I don't understand how the decision was made so quickly. Because you've got a foot in two camps, haven't you? Because if the if the National League continued, even though steps three to six were um, were declared null and void, there was always the possibility that you might have had to have have, have come out of, of suspension at some point over the summer to, to referee again. I mean, how did you feel about that? 
I love refereeing. It's I've done it for 14 years. So any opportunity to get out and officiate for me is is a good day. Um, it doesn't bother me whether it's closed season because I, I actually try and do a lot of pre-season as a lot of my colleagues do. It, it, I guess it's different at that level with the, the financial implications of promotion into the football league and and things like that. It, it's I would have been happy to go out and do it. It wouldn't have bothered me whatsoever. But I, I, as far as I'm aware, they're still they're still waiting to make a decision. Yes, very much so. But of course, that decision was taken quite early um, for the Western League. And um, certainly some of the managers and, and chairmen that I've spoken to in connection with the podcast were <laughs> disappointed, but equally relieved that, that the pressure of, of fulfilling the fixture list um, um, had been removed from them. I, I'm, I'm sure others would, would, would feel differently. But um, I mean, when we look at the, the fixtures remaining to be played in the Western League, that's 452 matches across both divisions. And of course, as much as we think about what that means for the volunteers who have to get the match day on and for the players um, in terms of their availability, uh, actually, we also have to think about all the match officials uh, that we required for that number of games, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we were we were talking about this uh, on some of the games that I was on, kind of end of February, beginning of March, when when COVID nineteen came about, um, and even talking to George McCaffrey because I know he does the fixtures. Um, there was one club in the Premier Division that had still had eighteen games left to play, um, and it was suggested that they'd be playing. I think it was Saturday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, for a few weeks to get them to get them sorted, and that that's knackering. That's hard work. Um, not only for the club, the volunteers, the the players, and etc. The referees too. We we still have we still need to have some rest days in between those games. There's only a certain amount of referees at level three and four that can referee Western League Premier and Western League Division One. So I, I we we never found out kind of how many games that would mean that we'd have each week. Um, don't get me wrong, I don't mind having two games a week. Um, three if one of them's a fourth official in the National League I can I can deal with that but but to, the, to consider refereeing on a Saturday a Monday a Wednesday and a Saturday is it, it, it's not right um, it's not right for our fitness levels it's not right for our bodies it's not right mental health wise it, it's tough I guess clubs have a little bit of a bonus that they they could rotate the squad a little bit they could they could rest players for half a game Unfortunately, match officials don't have that that luxury that we could just referee half game and then allow the assistant referee to take over. Um, that's not really the done thing. Um, so it, w- it would have been really difficult. It would have been really difficult. One final question for you, Ben, and that is um, um, obviously we, we this this interview forms part of our own campaign to uh, the Western League's campaign to um, support the work that match officials are doing. So if there's anybody who's listening to this uh, interview, p- possibly a player who's coming to the end of their um, um, playing career, what would be your message to them about um, becoming involved in the game as a match official? Absolutely do it absolutely do it um to still be involved in football in whatever capacity um is amazing we we all do it whatever whether we're a volunteer a secretary a player a manager whatever role we take within football we do it because we love it and i think that that comes back to to all referees as well we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't love the game um so just to stay an active part of it to be fortunate enough to to come up through the ranks, see some different teams, different grounds, different people, managing the expectations of those different players and different people. It's really tough, um, but the benefits are outstanding. 
Um, to be able to, I'm fortunate enough that I've refereed in Portugal, Sweden, China, Holland. There's, I would never have seen those places if it wasn't for refereeing, I don't think. Um, so there's so many different avenues that it can take you down, even if you start at a slightly older age, um, having completed your, your playing career. To still turn up on a Saturday and, and be involved in football, why wouldn't you? Ben, what a wonderful way to finish the interview. Thank you very much indeed for your time. I absolutely um, appreciate it. Um, please keep up the good work and hopefully you'll get back on the pitch blowing the whistle um, sooner rather than later. If you're thinking, Tool Station, I know they'll save me money, but do they have all the top brands? You know, DeWalt, Makita, Einhell, Stanley, Myra, Kudox, Nest and Santex. Yeah, they do. Over 15,000 trade quality products in the range from the leading brands with prices that are hard to beat. If you want a helping hand to save on your next job, try Toolstation. With over 300 branches, there's always a Toolstation near you. Now, um, regular listeners will remember that on last week's podcast, I spoke to Gareth Paisley, the uh, the vice president of um, Welton Rovers, and... Um, uh, we had a chat about his interesting work um, looking at the club's history. Now, during that conversation, he mentioned a conversation that he'd had with John Cuthbertson, of course, who is known to many of us as, a, as an award-winning photographer in the Western League. And um, that was all the encouragement I needed to get in touch with John to find out exactly what he'd been up to in terms of his own historical research, which, was, which made for a fascinating conversation. So I started by asking John what his research was all about. Well, about two and a half years ago, I was sort of thinking, you know, we, the club history's not been documented anywhere. So as I've been doing the website from the early 2000s, where you start building up some statistics, you know, players' appearances, goals, etc., etc., I thought, well, I'd start putting the, find out about the history of the club. And what I thought was going to be a little book or a little um, document has grown into quite a quite a beast actually in a just over a thousand pages in total. So I started investigating, and one of the greatest resources for getting this information was um, the central library up in uh, Swindon. So I got into a routine because I'm retired of um, going up to Swindon every Tuesday on a on the train getting into the library, and I had already pre-booked my um, microfiche reader and printer and all this. Um, so I got on well with the people out there, so I soon become a regular. So I spent about four hours up there each time. That's about as much as my eyes could handle on the old microfiche, as you know, as it zooms, you know, page after page after page, so you get a bit word-blind. And I started finding out then that going all the way back, to 1878 for the football club when everybody was under the impression from some work that had been done years and years ago the club was about 1884 well I you know backtracked it back to 1870 1878 when they happened to play a little team called Melsham Town <laughs> and unfortunately that was in February 1878 unfortunately from my point of view Melsham won 1-0 so within within the book, obviously because Corsham's um, a Wiltshire-based side, there's lots of references to Calentown, Westbury, Devizes, Bradford and Melksham. So even though the book is primarily about the history of Corsham, all the way through the book um, will be references back to 
all these other local clubs because uh, Caution were the, one of the original founding members of the Wiltshire League. And just as a side note, the Wiltshire League started in 1894. And the first winners of the Wiltshire League were yours truly, Caution Brown. <laughs> now, quite interestingly, there was a close-run race between a team called um, South Broom, which was now Devoid's Town. Ah, well. Now, what happened, it was neck and neck, and the final game of the season meant that the winning team would be going, would be winning the league by goal difference. Now, there was a bit of an uproar at the end of this because Caution went to play at Calm, and Caution won 17 goals to one. And it turned out that Calm Town didn't like South Broome because they were playing ringers of military personnel coming down from Aldershot to play for them. And so the newspaper cuttings of the day, it was uh, not a pleasant time for everybody to explain the goings-on. And actually, in research, I found um, somebody had donated a winner's medal to Caution Town, which is being held by somebody. So I was able to go and photograph the winner's medal from 1894. And it's a very elaborate-looking medal. It's not one of your standard round, you know, disc. It is a very fancy-looking looking, looking uh, medal. So you've got Wiltshire Football League on the front, and on the back it's got Caution winners, 1894-95. And say, so it all went on from there. And say, so what I thought was just going to be a few months of research ended up into... Uh, just over two, two, and a, two and a bit years. So does that mean that uh, that you have now finished re- researching that full yep. history of the of the club? Yeah, I've gone right and through. The, the plan was to finish it at the end of this season. Well, when that was um, cut short for the reasons we all know, the book now is the lines drawn under the book as of April 2020. So the book goes from 1878 all the way through to April 2020. It's I've set it up in basically three sections because it say it does run to 21 chapters. And the three sections are what I call the first section is called first half. And then that is the beginning from 1878. And that takes them through to 1997 when the club moved from the what was the Wiltshire League into the Western League. So there's eight chapters in in the first part, which is called the first half. The second volume, which I've, you know, quite easily called the second half, <laughs> is all of the Western League. So everything to do with the Western League, um, our championship year in 2006, stroke 07, uh, winning the Les Phillips Cup in 2005, stroke 06, and all our time in the Western League from say, the 1998-99 season, including a whole chapter on tables, results and statistics. Bit of a stats man. I love I love my stats. So there's stacks of that. And then the third um, section of the book, as the first one was called first half and second half, the third section is called extra time. <laughs> and that's got in there the FA Cup, the FA Vars, Wilt Senior Cup, a chapter on the reserves, youth, and the A-team, match day programmes, 
and then the normal acknowledgements and a little bit about myself. So if you go into just a little bit of side interest, my oldest program I've got which is 1950 in the FA Cup, Corsham Town at home to Warminster Town in the Wiltshire side. And I'm pleased to tell you in this game, Corsham won 3-2 in that game. <laughs> They've even got the match report and they've got the goal scorers all, all in the book. Unfortunately, in the next round, in that game, which again I got the programme for, Caution were away to Trowbridge Town, who were, you know, obviously a few leagues above Caution back then. And there was 2,673 at that game. Caution took over 300 supporters to the game. And as things were back in the day, Trowbridge were good enough to send over two coaches because Corsham couldn't get enough coaches. Trowbridge Town sent over two coaches to help ferry their Corsham supporters over to the game. And say Trowbridge won that one uh, 6-1. Oh, wow. Yeah. Can't have it always. No, not everything. But um, just before we move on to um, to your involvement with, with Corsham Town, um, I mean, in, in all the research that you've done, um, have you got any favourite facts? Have you got anything that really sort of, when you read it, you thought to yourself, blimey, that that has really, I didn't know that, um, that's that's really sort of blown me away? Well, the first one, to be honest, was the winning the, the inaugural um, Wiltshire League. That was one of them. The record, as I mentioned, say, within the, in the FA Cup. Um, record attendances, we always thought, our record attendance when we were in the Western League, we had an FA Cup game against uh, Newport County, and I think it was 550 we had at that game, which was great to see the South Bank lined with 550 people. But again, I found out in the 52 53 season, Caution played Chittenham Town at home, and there was over 1,200 at that game. Blimey. So, our, our thinking of, um, you know, 550. So, those sort of stats were interesting to um, come across. A little side one, I come across that the company who's actually going to be producing the book for me, publishing and printing, is Chris Perry and his team at um, Caution Print. Well, they've actually been providing the match day programme for Caution since 1984, which is 16, 36 years. They've been doing the same, same group of guys been doing the programme for us. As we know, the Caution programme has won quite a few of the Tall Station Western League um, awards over the years as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, as you say, for actual facts and figures, we've had some uh, famous players, if you want, for Caution over the years. I found a player that used to play for West Ham United in the West Ham United archives. There was a picture of him, um, date of birth and his playing career, which is all on in the West Ham archives. Showing you that he was at Caution Town, then where he went. And obviously, we had Darren Eady, um, Caution lad, who went on to play at Norwich City. And the most recent one is um, Tyrone Mings. Because Tyrone Mings, people might not realise, he made his senior league, senior debut from football in 2010-11 season for Caution Town, when he played uh, five games for us and scored one. Um, little side note on that one. I I sent some pictures to Tyrone a few years ago, uh, you know, commenting, you know, some of my early pictures of him. 
and he came back and he remembered, bearing in mind, what's he now, six foot five and a, <laughs> like a gladiator, isn't he? Well, back then he was not quite built like that, very fast and strong. But he um, he come back to me and commented, I remember I come on a sub, the shirts were so big, as I was running along, the shirt felt as though it was um, a parachute on my back. <laughs> That's how big it was. So, yeah, there's all sorts of things have um, turned up. And I say, 1,018 pages in the book, 439 photos, and 697 newspaper cuttings. So spread throughout the those three sort of um, sections of the book, there's something for everybody in there. And I'd say I've got to thank Chris at Caution Print for agreeing to um, publish and print it for me. We'll have a chat at the end about how people can um, will be able to get hold of the book. But I mean, I, I I know you through your photography, and I know that you've won um, the Tool Station Western League Photographer of the Year award yeah. um, before. So what what really? I mean, I'm interested to know what got you into um, photography. But actually, I'm 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 equally fascinated now, given everything you've just said about what got you into <laughs> Corsham Town. What, what where did your love affair with the team start? Love affair. I was a player. Back in my early days, I struggled to get into the Caution Town first thing. So it was too many. I was a goalkeeper. There was too many goalkeepers about back in the early seventies. So I got picked up by a chap called um, Polly Parrot, Conrad Parrot, who was a well-known football guy within, you know, within within Wiltshire and everything, Salisbury, Trowbridge, maybe. And he took me to what was then called the Wilts Combination League, which was higher than the standard Wilts League. So I could get into that team, but I couldn't get into the Corsham team. Um, I stayed there about three years, come back to Corsham in 74, I think it was. I then teamed up. The posh word these days is you become a physio. Well, in my day, you were the bucket and sponge man. <laughs> so I was a bucket and sponge man. We won the um, Wilts Senior Cup in 1976, even though we were a second division, you know, second division Wiltshire League side then, which was very good. And been on the committee, stayed involved, got back. It dropped out for a few years, normal thing, working family and what have you, but always kept an eye on how the team were doing. Got back involved again. And I was, say, the originator of the first um, website for the football club. And it was then by doing the website after a few years, I thought, well, I could do with a few pictures. So I started taking pictures of head and shoulders of players or the ground or, the, you know, things like that. Then bit by bit, I thought, well, I can we like this photography, Lark? So um, upgraded my kit a little bit, started sitting pitch side and taking a few photos, and I thought, oh, I like this. And it's really just sort of gone on from there. The love of um, football on the back of, obviously, being with Caution Town. Um, and then that sort of spilled over within the Western to the Western League. So a number of years now, I've been like um, the official photographer at Les Phillips Cup Finals, or Western League functions, which is great, part of the Western League family sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, that's how it's how it all started and how it all, you know, to where I am today. All self-taught, but you're not quite self-taught because wherever you go as a photographer, if you see another one, guaranteed you'll go over and say, hello, how are you getting on? What are your settings? What's your lens? What camera have you got? And, and things like that. You'll, you'll all do it. You, you just naturally do it. And um, a chap at Cowntown was helpful to me, a chap called uh, Dave Gillett. 
and actually a picture he took of me pitch side appears in the in the book so a uh, little credit to dave gillett for um taking my picture pitch size one day it's one of the great um, um benefits that comes from social media isn't it that now um and when you're going to a game and, you know, a caution game, you're taking pictures, obviously both sets of fans will get the benefit of seeing the pictures that you've taken from a game. Yeah. Um, so, so, so social media in that way has brought the Western league family closer together because you are able to share your work and other teams, not just caution fans will be able to benefit from it. Yeah, that's right. Um, one thing there's, there's teams after a game, they'll contact me and say, you know, can we have some pictures, which I'll send to them. And it's ideal then, they might have a few pictures, you know, pictures for the front cover of their next program, a few pictures inside. So there's a few print companies that contact me for pictures, which they can, you know, because they're producing programs and clubs for on, on websites. Players obviously contact me. They love to put it on their social media platforms or their... I only, only on my website, I only charge a pound to download a digital photo, you know, high quality one. And these players, cheeky rascals, they still ask and can have it for free. I charge them a quid for goodness sake. You know, I got somebody got to pay for all this kit I use. But now it's great. Social media, you you see your stuff out there. Um, used to do stuff for the, you know, the local newspapers and what have you. They've going through difficult times, so they cut down on what you know they would pick up. But I didn't I didn't do it for making money or anything. Do it for the love of it. Um, say the kit that I use doesn't come cheap. Um, but there's no way I would earn get enough money to pay for that. So it's just to put it down as an expensive holiday hobby I've got. Have you got a favourite picture that you've taken over the years? The first one that I, when I won the tour station um, photograph of the year, um, that was one. It was one of those I captured it. I didn't know at the time I got it, and it's only when you got back home on your computer. And it's it's a picture. So I say I've got in, in front of me. It's a picture. It was Caution Town playing at Chippenham Park. And um, there's a chap, player called Kieran Gleed, was quite close to me and the ball come to him and it's just either it's going to it's gonna sort of control it with his head, chest or what have you. And it, that one, that particular picture, everything, you know, it froze pitch. The picture froze lovely. The background was good and say it won, a, it won the award that year. Um, I won the award another year back in 2016 against for a game against Cheddar. That particular photo wasn't my favourite. You had to send five in. But, you know, it's a bit like art. You know, what one person thinks is good, another one goes, oh, I don't like that. I prefer the other one. But I suppose, to be honest, my favourite photo of all time was, it was at Corsham. We were playing Oldland Abertonians. Game had gone backwards and forwards. We were losing. We come come back, got to to um, drawing, and then we got a last minute winning goal. And I think it's about six of our players suddenly all ran together to celebrate. And as a photographer, you can either be at the right end of the pitch, the wrong side of the pitch, and it was a luck of the day. I was in the right place. I captured it. They got their arms out, facial expressions, and everything. And that sort of just captured. Um, what our class is, well, non-league football and the, you know, the closeness that the that the team had. So yeah, my favourite one would be would be that one of all time. Anyway, yeah. For people who are listening to this, then if they want to look at your pictures and see if there's any pictures that you've taken from games involving their sides, where, where can they where can they look at those? Yeah, well, what I've done, 
as you know, so my name is John Cuthbertson, which is quite a mouthful and too much. So I abbreviated it to my nickname. So my website is um, johncuppy.co.uk. So J-O-H-N-C-U-P-P-Y, johncuppy.co.uk. And they're all on there from, I think there's about, well, four or five seasons worth on there, plus all the Les Phillips Cup finals, Western League events. Um, but if anybody, they're not on, if any that they're after is not on there, contact me because I've got a folder at home, um, so a digital folder, and I've got all my photographs on there going back to uh, back to the year dot. And um, will your website also carry details about where um, people can get your book? Well, the book, I think, when that, <clears throat> excuse me, when that's all ready, we'll put that on the Caution Town website, the Caution Town Facebook and uh, Twitter sites, and the Caution Town fans Facebook page as well. So it will get out there via social media and everything. I'd obviously let yourself know, Ian, and uh, Tom Hisker, who does a bulletin, so we can have the, all the details put on the, on the bulletin as well. And my thanks to John for his time. Now, finally, uh, Tom, we've got one more feature to bring the listeners, and that is your film choice for the week, uh, Tom Hiscott's film 2020. So, um, so what have you got for us? I, I think most people probably will have seen this at some point. Uh, I've got, well, I was going to say it's a bit of comedy, but uh, Groundhog Day. Obviously, everyone feels like we're in a bit of Groundhog Day, so <laughs> it felt felt relevant. Uh, but, yeah, I did watch it the other day, to be honest. Uh, it was on one of the Sky channels, and I, again, didn't know anything better to do, of course. Uh, that seemed to be, yeah, the, the situation of Farmer Supermoto. I don't have anything much to do. So, uh, yeah, with Bill Murray and, uh, yeah, kind of, yeah, as I say. Bit of a, maybe a bit of a laugh in these trying times for people if they can, yeah, if they if they've got a few hours to spare. <laughs> well, your your um your segment earlier in the podcast about um um about what you've been watching on television and reminded me of um a, a film, The Damned United. You you, oh, you mentioned yeah. uh, you mentioned Michael Sheen, of course, mm. um mm. who was in that who was in that uh, serialised program you watched um, about who wants to be a millionaire. And um, he, of course, played um, Brian Clough uh, in that film, The Damned United, uh, which is, I mean, it's one of my favourite films. I know there's a lot of sort of, there's a lot been written about how accurate that depiction was of, of Clough's period at Leeds, but it did make for a very entertaining and, and sometimes sometimes amusing, sometimes tragic um, tale. So if, if the listeners do fancy a little bit of that, I think it might have even been on the other day, although nowadays... Yeah, so I think you could probably find it on the iPlayer, I think. So I think it's on yeah. BBC the other day, so yeah. Well, let's let yes go and have a look at that as well mm. as Groundhog Day, and then you can watch Groundhog Day again because that's what it's all about. <laughs> and again and again, yeah, <laughs> yeah mm. every day. Right, Tom, thank you very much indeed, and for your time um, today. Uh, look after yourself, won't you, over and the you. next uh, yeah. seven days? Cheers. And that will I look forward to catching up with you on next week's Tool Station Western League podcast. <laughs>